So let me ask you a question. What day will you begin thawing your bird this week? Do not ask Mariah Carey. She started thawing the day after Halloween too soon, way too soon. But it does take longer than you think. Apparently, I learned this week, you thaw one day for every five pounds the turkey weighs. I didn't know that. I learned this other tidbit about turkeys this week. Benjamin Franklin was far more fond of them than of our national symbol, the bald eagle. Did you know this? In a letter to his daughter, he wrote, The bald eagle is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. He is too lazy to fish for himself. By contrast, he expressed a view that the turkey is a much more respectable bird, a native of North America, and though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage. I cannot say that I've ever considered the moral fiber of various fowl, but honestly, our text today did give me an occasion to start wondering. Okay, week before last, Meg preached about Ezekiel's vision of the valley filled with bones, dry bones, and they started to click together and stand up and pull on flesh and sinews. I've always thought that sounded like a terrifying vision, personally. Well, if that text is terrifying, today's is pure nightmare fuel. Sorry, folks. We're reading from the book of Revelation. Technically, we're a week early, but today we celebrate the liturgical day known as Christ the King Sunday. So just before we head into the season of Advent and then Christmas, before we read all the soft-lit Christmas stories of baby Jesus, the liturgical calendar asks us to remember that this holy infant, so tender and mild, is in fact the king of all kings, and that his kingship challenges, threatens all the powers of this world. So a rather unnerving reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, complete with the scene right out of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Before we read today, though, I'm Invite us to bow our heads and pray for the Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Not what we want to hear, O oh God. Not the sanitized version of a Savior who gives and expects nothing in return. But open us to the full cost of discipleship. Amen. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were killed by the sword of the rider on the horse, the sword that came from his mouth. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The word of the Lord? Thanks be to God? Question mark? All right, all right. Are you ready to go to ninth grade English class? Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. What is Montague? It is not hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What is in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name, would smell as sweet. All right, Juliet's famous balcony speech may appear to be nothing more than a swooning declaration of love. And yet it contains this interesting philosophical question, does a name matter? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I suppose we could call a rose a hemonistrat or a diademata, which, by the way, are the peculiar names of some of the tunes that we sing our hymns to today. But even if we called a rose something else, it would still be an aromatic flower with soft petals that delights the senses. So does the name matter. Juliet clearly says no, and though she does have some age on her by now, she's very much out of step, actually, with more ancient literature. In the Greco-Roman worldview, as well as that of the Bible, to know the true name of someone is to have power over them. The Greek poet Homer tells of the hero Odysseus concealing his name from a giant that had captured him. Later, though, after Odysseus escapes and traps the giant in turn, Odysseus gloats by telling the giant his real name. And this act of hubris causes him nothing but trouble because now, armed with the true name of Odysseus, the giant could call down the wrath of his father Poseidon. The seas were not very kind to Odysseus after that. Knowing the name means something. And for scripture, it's quite similar. In the book of Genesis, Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, wrestles an angel all night long. And as dawn breaks, 
he asks the mysterious figure for his name. The angel refuses to tell him because names have power. And standing before the burning bush, Moses asks for the name of God. Who shall I say has sent me, Moses asks. All he gets in response is Yahweh. I will be who I will be. And that is not a proper name at all. And in the Gospels, Jesus encounters a man possessed by an evil spirit. And the first thing he says to the demon, what is your name? Knowing the demon's name is what gives Jesus authority to cast it out. So knowing the name means something. Now our reading today paints, what shall we call it, a unique portrait of Jesus. One that is powerful, but also not a little frightening. Out with the lamb and in with the lion, gone is long hair, hippie Jesus, blessing the children, healing the sick, and playing hacky sack. He's been replaced by a fierce warrior whose eyes are pure fire, who wears a robe dipped in blood, who has a giant sword coming out of his mouth. It sounds like he stepped right out of the Lord of the Rings, but the point is clear. Jesus is totally and completely in control of history. There's no other authority under heaven or on the earth, and any who claim to rival that power will in time be reduced to so much bird food. So think on that before carving your bird on Thursday. But tucked in this description, there's this interesting detail. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. So this fierce warrior who is Christ, who with the sword coming out of his mouth subdues the kings of this earth, who vanquishes any and every power arrayed against God's kingdom and God's kingdom, this warrior has a name that nobody knows. Now I find myself reaching back to the logic class I took across the street my first year at UNC. I got a C in it, so this doesn't bode well. But if knowing a creature's name gives you power over it, and if Christ has a name that nobody knows but himself, well then, the logical conclusion is that nobody Nobody exercises control over Christ. New Testament scholar Brian Blunt, who has preached from this pulpit before, he writes of this secret name. The author of Revelation wants his hearers and readers to know that even believers, even believers cannot manipulate Christ's act of dealing justice. They can know the Lord well enough to serve him, to worship him, to testify about him, but they never know him well enough to control him. Have you ever noticed how many people claim 
that they speak for Christ? Have you ever heard someone claim that their agenda is somehow especially consistent with the will of God? And if you have, was that person among the lowly or the meek of the earth? Or did they move in and out of the hallways of power? Feel free to disagree, but it seems to me that the ones who say they champion the judgment of God more often do so from a position of considerable power. They just want God to be on their side to justify using that power. But if I understand this text at all, as frightening and discomforting as it might be, this fearsome version of Christ puts the powerful ones on notice. It's a defiant declaration against those who would co-opt Christ for their own purposes. It's Jesus emphatically saying, nobody speaks for me. Nobody represents me. You do not know my name. But I know your name. And you do not escape the judgment. Now, you don't have to go far back in time at all to find individuals or groups who say they speak for God. They're around us all the time. But this week, this week my mind drifted towards the Ku Klux Klan. The theology of the Klan was quick to cover their racist, nativist agenda with this sheen of Christian respectability. In fact, I bet they have a field day with the fact that this Christ we encounter in Revelation 19 is riding a white horse. But my mind drifted back to a film that I saw when I was young. It's called Places in the Heart. It's set in the Depression-era Deep South. It's a story about a, a black sharecropper named Mose who forges this unlikely alliance with a recently widowed white woman who's just about to lose her family farm. Together, they come up with a plan to hold on to the farm, and in the process, this other character, Will, who's a blind white man, he rents a room from the family. He comes into the picture. Well, outright outraged by this unconventional partnership, the clan shows up one night intent on killing Mose. And they have him tied up outside. They're beating him when Will comes out to help his friend. But without his vision, there's only so much he can do to defend him. Well, that is until Will leans into his other senses and he begins to name the hooded men one by one by one. Mr. Thompson, he asks, why are you doing this to him? One of them replies, you got the wrong man, that ain't Thompson. Oh, that's Mr. Thompson. I've been selling him brooms for years, just as sure as you're Mr. Shaw. And that's Mr. Simmons over by the barn. Once their anonymity is broken, they retreat. Or shall we say they are cast out? Sometimes knowing the name really does mean something.
You know, the secret name written on the crown of Christ, the King of all kings, we're, we're never going to know it. It's not ours to know. But Jesus does know your name. Jesus does know my name. He knows all our names. The birds of courage, as well as the birds of bad moral character. He knows the ones who would co-opt his image and likeness to prop up their own misguided agendas. He knows the ones who bear faithful witness to him in times both favorable and unfavorable. It's both judgment and it's also grace, which are two sides of the same coin. But Jesus knows our names. Amen.